to Life Conversations, where we explore what it means to live fully in marriage, in motherhood, and in meaningful work. Thank you for joining us on Life Conversations. We have another amazing guest for you today. But before we dive in, we wanted to ask for your help in expanding our community. We'd love if you could rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If there is a particular episode you loved, please do share it with your friends. You can also follow us on our Instagram, Life Conversations, a podcast. If there's something that deeply resonated with you on an episode or something you'd love to hear more about, please message us. We love hearing from you. Thank you again for joining us on this journey of marriage, motherhood, and meaningful work. Hello and welcome back to Life Conversations. We have a very big and important topic for you today. So many of our listeners have been asking for us to talk about anxiety and we have the anxiety expert with us today, Dr. Russell Kennedy. Um, And Tracy and I are just so grateful that we're actually sitting here face to face with Dr. Russ. So Dr. Russ, I originally met you uh, after my dad passed away in 2020. And as you saw and probably can also imagine, my anxiety had gotten so crazy out of control at that point. Um, And for someone who also struggles with health anxiety, uh, a big loss like losing my dad really triggered a very deep, uh, put me on a very deep anxiety spiral. Um, But when I read your book, Anxiety Rx, it was the first time I actually felt heard and that someone really understood what I was thinking and feeling. Um, And so shortly after that, you and I sat down and had a session together and talked about a lot about finding the alarm in my body, that feeling. Um, And if I don't know if you remember what you told me that day, but we talked about how I needed to go have fun again Mm. and how little Tracy was actually really craving to not be responsible all the time and to go out and have fun. And we talked about basketball and all the things I enjoyed as a kid. Um, And so while I'm still working on all of that, because it's definitely a practice, um, I really felt like finally I had met someone who understood where I was at and could, I could finally get a handle on this. So I, we are both so excited to be a part of this conversation today. Um, You've taught me already so much about my own anxiety and I know you are going to help so many more people today after this conversation. So thank you for having, thank you for giving us this opportunity to sit down with you. It's nice to be here. It's rare I get to do podcasts in person these days, so it's nice. Yeah, you are just coming off a big interview with Mel Robbins, whose podcast is phenomenal. Amazing. And, you know, (laughs) one of the top podcasts on Apple Podcasts, that's for sure. So we are, yeah, just thrilled that you're here to have a conversation with us. We have a lot of really big and important questions for you today. But before we dive in, I just want to get a little bit deeper into your personal bio. Uh, Dr. Russell Kennedy, aka the Anxiety MD, specializes in the art and neuroscience of helping people recover from anxiety disorders. He knows anxiety from the inside out as he developed his own anxiety disorder as a result of growing up with a dad with severe schizophrenia. Dr. Kennedy has degrees and advanced training in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology, but it's not all science as he is also certified yoga and meditation teacher and was a professional stand-up comedian for over a decade. (laughs) In his award-winning book and audiobook, Anxiety Rx, he shows a practical, actionable program for anxiety relief that incorporates a combination of the latest in neuroscience with the grounding wisdom of the body with the ultimate goal of relieving the anxious thoughts of the mind. Using neuroscience and blending that science with a more artistic approach he learned through living at a temple in India, taking psychedelics, and being a natural and gifted intuitive, Dr. Kennedy gives a unique and never-before-seen understanding of what anxiety truly is and further exactly how it can be successfully treated. Dr. Russ wants to make sure that nobody has to suffer with anxiety as he did. Well, time's up. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, We'll see you later. I told you I get embarrassed when people read the long bio. I love it. Yeah, okay. 
So given that bio, sure. what more do you want to share with us about your story and what brought you on this path? Uh, I just don't want anyone to suffer like I did, you know, because you don't have to. And, and traditional therapies, I think, really miss the mark in so many ways. And I think we, we're a medication nation and I'm not against psych meds by any means at all. I just think that doctors aren't trained in trauma. They're not, they don't have the time to deal with trauma, so they want to help, so you're likely to get a prescription, which may or may not be the best thing for you. And I think I want to provide a different or an option to taking medication. Again, uh, it's, I sound like Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with that, you know, but it's, it's really important to really get to the root cause of this rather than mask the, the symptoms, because sometimes the symptoms are the trailhead that you use to find the root of the problem. And if you mask that trailhead, it makes it even harder to sort of work through those problems in therapy. Mm-hmm. How's that? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Now, I am enjoying your book okay. so much, I'm devouring it. But for those people who haven't read your book, um, you do share in depth and detail your personal history yeah. and story and how you arrived on this path. Um, but the, for those who haven't read it, can you share a little sure. bit more about that story? Yeah, I grew up with a dad with schizophrenia and bipolar. So for times he was great. He was very, very funny and very uh, playful and really taught me how to do a lot of things like hit a ball, ride a bike, all those kind of things. But he would, you know, at periods go nuts, you know, wind up being taken away in an ambulance or being admitted to a mental hospital for two or three months. So for a boy, it's really hard to see your dad in that debilitated way and then not be able to see him because sometimes he was behind locked doors in the psych ward. Like, I think he got formed. Um, formed is the term that we medical doctors use when we commit someone against their will. I think he got formed three or four times, mm-hmm. you know, so he couldn't leave. Like, there's no way. Sometimes he went involuntarily. But it was really difficult, you know, to deal with that on a number of levels, you know, as a boy, as his son, and then as I got into my teen years, I was, you know, I would take up more of a um, kind of a leadership role in the family. Like I was the oldest boy, right? I have a brother, younger brother, and I was the oldest boy. So I would kind of take over the, the head of the household role. And I was too young, you know, and one of the, my little acronyms that I use is alarm. Like one of the alarms that we get when we grow up with trauma is alarm stands for A is for abuse, loss, abandonment, rejection, and anything that made you mature too early. So that's the acronym for alarm. Mm-hmm. So growing up in that family, my mother worked a lot. She was a registered nurse. So it was really helpful because she brought in a decent income. Like we were never poor. Uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of extras in the house. So I think it was really important just for me to understand what was going on in my own mind because I had you know, done traditional therapy, you know, even stuff like EMDR and hypnosis and that kind of thing for 30 plus years. And it really wasn't helping. Like it was, or maybe not, that's not the best word. It was helping, but I was still you know, feeling a lot of discomfort and a lot of pain and it still you know, kept me trapped. So. I did um, LSD, ayahuasca, all that kind of stuff at one of the lowest points in my life. Like I had ruptured my left Achilles tendon, like we were just talking about before we went on air. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was kind of like suicidal. I was like, I I didn't think life was worth living if I was going to live in a 10 hour panic attack every day. So on LSD, my anxiety was shown to me to be a state of alarm that I hold in my solar plexus, kind of like where my ribs meet. And... From, my, from that point on, it was like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't in my mind at all. Maybe it's just being reflected by my mind. And it's an old trauma of growing up with my dad and all his, you know, the vicissitudes of his life. And that trauma is still in me. And my body reads my mind constantly. And if there's a, an, an area of alarm stuck in your body, your mind will make up stories that are completely consistent with that alarm, which comes out as worry. So then you worry, and of course, that doesn't do much to help the alarm, so the alarm gets worse, mm-hmm. so the worries get worse. And there's a you know, neurophysiological reason why that, why that happens, is that when we get alarmed, we shut off our rational mind in favor of our survival mind. You know, human beings will almost always universally take the emotional over the rational. 
we think we're rational, but we'll take the emotional over the rational. So if we feel like we're in survival mode, we lose our rational mind. So not only do we worry more, but we don't have our rational mind there to tell us that these worries are ridiculous. So I don't know if you guys have had the experience where you, you're worried about something and then four hours later you go, why was I so worried about that? Mm -hmm. Like that seems so ridiculous mm -hmm. now. It's because your body was completely in a state of alarm. You'd shut off your rational mind so you couldn't see actually from a neuroscientific point of view, you couldn't see that your worries were false. And on top of that, when you can't see your worries are false, you believe your worries more, which puts you more into alarm. So the whole cycle just recharges itself. So that's basically what happened with me. I have an experience with anxiety that I wanted to share a bit about because sure. it's going to lead me to a question that I have for you that I think a lot of people will have yeah. as they become familiar with your work. Um, first off, I want to say that reading your book and hearing you in interviews, it was the first time that, as Tracy said, I really felt somebody understood mm. what I had experienced. And the first time it all began to make sense to me. So I grew up with a mother who had a very severely debilitating case of multiple sclerosis. Okay. And so uh, she passed away when I was 14 and she was 40. And I would say looking back on my life, like I have known the experience of anxiety for most of my life, but I, for the most part, would relate it to situational anxiety like it would come up in specific situations or around specific events or occurrences um, but about five years ago that all changed so september of 2017 woke up got the kids ready for school ready for work went and dropped my kids off at school and i was driving away from the school heading towards work and felt like out of nowhere, I felt this huge wave of anxiety take over my body. And that led to a number of panic attacks over the next several weeks. Um, very intense panic attacks where you feel like, I think I'm dying. Mm -hmm. um, and then that led to a number of months where I lived in kind of that constant state of fear and hypervigilance. Like, I do not want another one of those panic mm -hmm. attacks. I have to do everything possible to make sure that does not happen again. But what I would say, you know, from that point, I really went on this personal journey of healing my anxiety. And what I would say I knew starting out on that journey is I knew that the anxiety was coming from my body, that that was where it originated. And I didn't have quite the language that, right. that you use in your book. I didn't have your book at that right. time. But now that I have your book and I'm reading through it, it's like I'm connecting the dots of that experience and it's all coming together and making sense. But what I did know in that moment is that it was coming from my body and that in order to heal it, I wasn't going to be able to talk or think my way mm -hmm. out of it. Um, but it brings me to this question for you that I'm sure a lot of other people have is I have my own theories about it, but are there specific triggers that will really awaken dormant alarm in the body as you as you call it because for me one of the things that i was trying to really figure out in that journey was why in this on this morning mm -hmm. driving away from dropping the kids off at school did this wave of anxiety show up in my life what right. was the trigger for that yeah i mean there's a structure in our brains called the amygdala we have two left and right and the amygdala, amygdala never forgets anything that's ever hurt you, ever. And a lot of my, my patients or clients or anxiety peeps will say, I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood. And it's not, I don't think, and there's no way to prove this, it's not because those memories didn't get encoded. It's just that we don't have the, the software and the hardware to retrieve those memories. So they're in there, but we just can't access them. Right? But they, nonetheless, they still act on, their, on your body. So the amygdala has a superhighway, direct route to the brainstem, which fires up your body. So if the amygdala sees anything in your environment that is reminiscent of your old trauma, it will fire the shockwave through your body. Now, a lot of times we're not aware of those things. You know, I remember I, I talk about in my book being at this concert here in Victoria with Colin James and the little big band. 
and there was a trumpet player and my dad used to play the trumpet and I hate the freaking trumpet I, it. <laughs> like I, I there's just if you play it well that's okay but if you play it poorly it's 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 a real big trigger for me now I was really upset in that in that I was having a great time I love Colin James one of my favorite guitarists and I just had a really like a panic attack and then I realized and then the, the, the trumpeter stand up to play another solo and it's like oh that's it it's the trumpet right mm-hmm. so sometimes we're not aware but the amygdala never forgets so anything that that has ever troubled you in the past is locked in there and especially when we're pre-verbal especially before seven years old when we don't have the language to explain it you know so what I would do what what I would have done with you then and what I did with Tracy is like okay let's just go into that moment and like can we go back there can we track into it can we feel where you felt that in your physiology and just really drill down to it like does it have a size shape color temperature like really drill down into it and see because I do believe that a lot of those things that alarm is our younger self you know it's asking for our attention it's asking for to be seen heard and loved in a way now that it never was back then so it's finding it it's a beacon those panic attacks those things are a beacon of that younger version of yourself to be able to go back find them and show them you know and one of the things i ask people is you know what what did that child want mm-hmm. you know and and you know put your conscious mind aside for mm-hmm. a second you know if that child could have anything it wanted in that particular point what would it have you know for me it would have been i would have had a healthy mentally healthy dad mentally healthy dad that's what i would have wanted you know and it says well can you sit in that possibility and it's hard it's hard because i think when you're a child you want this stuff so badly and it never comes so as an adult you can recreate it through your imagination but there's so much resistance to that and it's like, can we sort of move past that resistance and give that child now what they so badly needed back then? So that's what I would have done with you at the time. If you would have driven to my office instead of, you know, work, we would have sat down and said, okay, let's just drill down to this. Where is this coming from? Where is it? You know, can we find it first? And often once we find it, we can use that as sort of a beacon or a trailhead, sort of an IFS term, internal family systems work. Um, a trailhead to track back and find out where this trauma came from and then if we can find that little girl and reassure her we can diffuse a lot of that alarm and the alarm is what's feeding the anxious worries in the first place and the panic attacks Mm -hmm. so if we can you know diffuse it at its source then we we heal instead of just cope and i think so often in our society we just cope with anxiety right. you know and a lot of those a lot of those coping strategies are cognitive like just realize that your worries are aren't real or whatever well like i said earlier you don't have your rational mind when you're alarmed so mm-hmm. how are you supposed to use that rational mind to diffuse your or you know take your worries and make them kind of less important when you don't have your access to the irrational, you, what you have is this access to this emotional survival brain, which is going to make the worst out of everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't, you can't fix a feeling problem with a thinking solution. You need, mm-hmm. you need to go in there and fix it at its source. And that's usually the unconscious mind. And there are ways of getting at that unconscious mind that current therapies really don't touch that well. Can we get into a little bit about finding the alarm in the body? Sure. Because when you and I first started, when we first, when I first originally met you, I yeah. had worked with Nima a little bit as well. Yeah. And I, because the alarm was so loud in my body mm-hmm. at that time, I couldn't yeah. find it. So I was like, I'm just going to fake it till I make right. it. And it's here or it's in yeah. my stomach or yeah. it's in my throat, but it felt everywhere. Mm-hmm. So for someone who's first starting out, how would you recommend them like calming themselves enough in that irrational spiral yeah. to find it? It's usually having someone else, like have a mm, therapist, okay. someone to work with you. Like if it's that intense, you know, you really should look at somebody like a somatic experiencing, mm-hmm. you know, therapist or somebody like that that really gets you into your body and shows you where this is in a safe environment, you know, uses their nervous system to kind yeah. of calm yours. So, and I see that a lot with people that have had, you know, childhood abuse and that kind of stuff, and significant abuse. 
that it will show up all over. Like they can't itemize it. And then after we make them feel safer, they'll go, you know, initially it was just all over. It just took me took me over. Like Mel Robbins said, like, it starts in my feet and it goes all the way up, all the way up into my chest. It's like, okay. So that tells me that we, we have to make you feel safer. Mm. And when we make you feel safer, sometimes what will show up is like, yeah, it's kind of more centered in my in my heart area or my throat. You know, a lot of women with narcissistic mothers or sick mothers or whatever will show up with, with uh, the alarm in their throat because they never really could say what they wanted to say mm. to their mom, you know, and, or dad, you know, and, and that's true for, for boys as well. Although I see mostly women because women are more more likely to seek therapy than, than men are. So it's like there are certain alarm patterns I will see like in the throat is that you couldn't tell your parent what you wanted to tell them, you know. Heart stuff is kind of like really attachment connection stuff. Belly stuff is kind of like I didn't get my needs met, like I either got abused or I didn't get enough to eat or I didn't have shelter or whatever. So it's funny how these, not for everybody, but it's funny how these alarm patterns kind of show up with different types of trauma. So, like, I'm not surprised to see this, you know, if someone has a, a mother who's narcissistic or demanding, that they'll show up with their alarm in their throat. Like, mm -hmm. it just it just really happens that way. And then once you isolate it, and then you drill down into it, it's like, okay, does it have a size? Like, sometimes I'll use a fruit analogy. Is mm -hmm. it like a grape? Or is it like, you know, a peach? Or is it cantaloupe or a watermelon? Like, how big is it? You know, does it have, is it solid all the way through? Or does it have patches that are are more intense than others you know is it dense like a like a diamond or is it sort of fluffy like cotton candy like we'll really drill down into the alarm because i think the more we use the cognitive kind of um, explanation and and the way we describe it i think we access it a little deeper and then people will often say, oh, I had a memory that I've never, you know, mm. in uh, somatic experiencing, we have this thing called cybam, so sensations, images, memories, you know, affect, uh, behaviors, all these things that, is there anything associated with that? Do you have an image or do you have a, a, an urge to do something? When we get into that alarm feeling, like you have an, like a lot of the women who have their alarm in their throat, like I have this urge to yell. It's like, okay, go ahead, you know, <laughs> have at it, yeah. go for it. And I'm a big I'm a big fan of car screaming. And car screaming is something I used to do when I was burned out of medicine. And I would go out in the car, <laughs> and I would drive. I was it was in Vancouver, and I would go down to uh, um, the beach, and I would just scream in my car, you know. And I'd come back to work, and I'd be like, "Okay, how long have you had this sore throat? <laughs> how long have you had this sore throat? You know, I sound like I'm a, like a three pack a day smoker. <laughs> yeah, sit down on the table. I'll be in there to see you in a second. Yeah." So, you know, but it really helped, like it got that energy out, right? Like it moved right. it. And, and so much of, you know, when we're working with people, especially like in SE and that kind of stuff, is that we want them to say, okay, that was my alarm when I first started talking. Has that changed? Has it moved around, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's not like SE is the only thing I use, but it is one of the more powerful tools, you know? My wife, Cynthia, she's a somatic experiencing practitioner. Mm -hmm. So she deals mostly with people that have had pre-verbal trauma. So trauma before the age of seven, you know, because the body will have its own message. And like we can just use the message of the body. We don't necessarily have to know what your trauma was. We can use the message of the body, the sensation of the body to track back and find that child and just make them feel safe again. You know, and I, I think that's a lot of what it comes down to is just finding the original root cause as opposed to just either taking medication or, you know, rationally realizing, okay, this isn't going to happen. I'm not going to run out of money. I'm actually healthy. You know, those are all cognitive structures. They're top-down kind of influences and they help, you know, top-down influences really help. But what I found in my own healing is that once I did the somatic work, once I did a lot of the body work involved in it, is that a lot of the cognitive work that I did over the years started to make sense. It's like, oh, this is what this comes from. You know, this is where the imposter syndrome comes from. This is where the, you know, I always have to do more and more and more. I always have to help as many people as I can. This is where it comes from. You know, so it's like, I can understand that. But for some reason, at the time I did cognitive therapy, it didn't really stick. And I think we need this sort of grounded place in our body first. So these revelations actually stick. There is this saying that... Uh, Insight is the popcorn of psychotherapy. It's in this it's in this book called The General Theory of Love. It's written by three psychiatrists. And it's a great book. But insight is the popcorn of psychotherapy. So knowing why is helpful 
But I think we had this thing, especially in the 70s and 80s, and I know I'm talking a lot here. I'm going to slow down. No, it's great. So in the 70s and 80s, there was this thing called cathartic therapy. So basically, there was this idea that if they put you on a, a you know a mattress and they made you scream, it's like I hate you, Dad, or whatever it is, um, that, that you would discharge this energy, right? And in maybe two percent of people, it actually did work. But in ninety-eight percent of people, it re-traumatized them. Oh yeah. So it's one of those things like you know we're doing a lot of stuff now, and I think on some level, sometimes talk therapy, you know, seeing five or six or ten therapists, you know, and just telling your story. Oh, my dad was schizophrenic and bipolar. And just telling that story over and over again, it's re-traumatizing, mm-hmm. and it's, it also reinforces like. Okay, you're the twentieth therapist I've seen. Mm-hmm. I've told this story twenty times, mm-hmm. and I'm still not any better. Mm-hmm. And like, am I really expecting you as my new therapist mm-hmm. to sort of do what the previous nineteen couldn't? And I think a lot of that was that they they dealt with a lot of the cognitive work involved because that's how you're trained in university. In university, when you do a master's in counseling. You're not trained in somatic therapy, mm-hmm. like you're trained in these cognitive CBT type stuff, which does work. Like if you go into a university and you have anxiety and they'll give you a little questionnaire and you'll score like, I don't know, 60 out of 100. So it means that you've got anxiety. And then after the 12 week program, you're scoring at 37. It's like, yeah, because these things are, are, are you know, in right of mind, like they're right there. You've learned these things, but after a year, your ego, your ego will drag, and Mel Robbins hates talking about ego. I heard you say that. So, but your ego will drag you back to that same place, which is basically putting you in front of that child again. And unless you know that child is there, you're not going to be, you're not going to get better, you know? So for someone like me, when I am reading your book and working through the process of discovering, you know, this alarm in your body, it, it makes so much sense to me because I can look at my childhood experience and identify what I went through and why it created, you know, this alarm, this emotional trauma that was still stored in my body Mm -hmm. that I had to bring up and work through. But for somebody listening that experiences anxiety, but looks back and says, like, I had a great childhood. I didn't, I didn't have childhood trauma. I don't know what you mean. Uh, What do you say to that person? Um, a couple of things. <laughs> one is people have tremendous blind spots for their own trauma. You know, I had this one guy, and I tell this story quite a bit, this realtor who was very successful, made a lot of money, um, but he uh, had severe anxiety. And, and I asked him about his parents. They said, my mom was great. My dad was great. They're still together. They live in Obey, you know, which is a suburb of Victoria. And, uh, but my dad, you know, he used to hit me. You know, and when I took a deeper history, like it wasn't just, it was beatings. Like this, this guy from seven till 12 was getting these beatings. And I said, well, how has that affected you? He said, well, it's made me tough. Like it's made me a really good salesman. It's made me really, you know, my dad really did me this favor of, you know, toughening me up for the world. And it's like, no, that's trauma. Like like that's significant. So, so he didn't see it as trauma though. Like that's the thing. And I see that so often in people Mm -hmm. like when I go, because I think what happens when you're a child and this is happening to you, you have to develop a sense that this is normal. Mm -hmm. Like this is not, this Mm -hmm. is not trauma. This is normal. Mm -hmm. So you tell yourself, this is normal. This is normal. This is seven, eight, 10, 12, 15. You tell yourself that your whole life. And then when someone asks you, it's like, no, no, it was fine. You know, it was fine. The other thing I see. So that's the first thing. People have a lot of blind spots for their own trauma. So you were traumatized, you just didn't, you know, just don't acknowledge it as trauma. And the next time is like, I see a lot of people who say, I had a great childhood. Uh, I want to go to Dr. Evil. My childhood was typical. Luge lessons, summers in Rangoon, you know. <laughs> but, but you know, um, I asked them, go back and ask your parents if you had a separation from them before you were five years old. And so many times people say, yeah, my mom had to go in a hospital for our gallbladder thing and they had complications since she was in there for six weeks and I couldn't see her. That's trauma. And especially, here's the other piece of this that's really important is, I don't believe that we're born with a genetic temperament to anxiety. I do believe, however, we are born with a genetic temperament to sensitivity. Mm. So we are sensitive little beings. Mm -hmm. And if you're a sensitive being in a loving, caring household, you'll do fine. Right, but if you are a sensitive being and there's trauma in your household, that's when we really start getting into the problem. And there's this thing about big T and little t trauma, which I, I 
don't really like the de- uh, the designation of big T and little T. I think it helps. You know, big T trauma is emotional, physical, sexual abuse, that kind of stuff. Little T trauma is, you know, um, abandoned. I got left at my, my school camp for a night and nobody was there to help me. You know, it's like, that's pretty traumatic. For a sensitive child, mm-hmm. little things can be very traumatic. So I see a lot of people that come in and say, I have severe anxiety, but I, you know, my childhood was good. I didn't have problems. Um, but when I go into it a little deeper, I find that they did have a big childhood separation. Uh, or they don't see their own problems. Or they inherit it. That's the other thing. Inherited family trauma is real. You know, like Rachel Yehuda's work out of Mount Sinai in New York, working with children of Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. You know, those people have a much higher rate of anxiety and depression than the general population. So it's like, how did they get that? Well, trauma can be handed down. Mm-hmm. Maybe through non-coding RNA, there's a whole bunch of specific, you know, potential reasons why this happens but there's a number of reasons why people have anxiety and I think people say they look back on their childhood and they say you know I didn't have trauma so I don't know why I'm anxious and it's like well wait till you see me I'll tell, I'll show you where your trauma is I've also heard you talk about this parenting mismatch yep. yeah can you say more about that? I think yeah I don't I can't remember exactly where I got that from I think it's Nicole LaPera I think it's Nicole and she said you know sometimes just especially with girls and their moms mm. you know Girls and their moms, if, if they mesh, it's, it's a wonderful union. But if there's a lot of uh, young girls who feel that their mother is just, you know, different from them, and there's this mismatch there, and they don't feel connected to her, and, and it creates a lot of separation. I think, you know, we all require connection. And I think there is this kind of fallacy that boys don't require it as much as girls. I think boys are better at hiding that they need connection than girls are. But girls specifically, you know, because women tend to talk, they use more language stuff, you know. So if we, and I love the study they did about uh, where they put uh, men and women into MRI scanners and then they gave them semi-complex words like, you know, ambitious or whatever. And like in the male brain, four places light up and in the female brain, 14 places light up. So there's so much more language kind of focused. For women so it's like I think that women just need that that connection with their mom now that said when I hear women say my daughter's my best friend I kind of cringe because it's like your daughter shouldn't be your best friend like that's that's kind of a, a, a red flag for me that there there's too much enmeshment there mm. right right so and that can cause you know too much enmeshment can cause anxiety just as much as too little even so, as an adult even as an adult especially mm. as an adult you know, because boundaries get crossed. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, one of the things about boundaries is that it allows you to have healthy anger. You know, when someone crosses your boundary, anger is a protective response, it's a protective reflex. So if you are trained by your mom or your dad or whatever that anger isn't welcome and we, we don't get angry with each other, we just, we just hug it out or whatever. It's like we need anger to promote these boundaries that keep us, you know, kind of separate and contained within ourselves because if we're just these you know jellyfish that are out there feeling everything on everybody and a lot of people with anxiety are very sensitive you know they feel their family and they don't have the boundaries themselves you know you're a sitting duck for anxiety and it's also very hard to regulate your body when you're this jellyfish picking up on everybody you know and Gabor Mate talks about that too he talks about about how if you put you someone else's needs above yours or if you can't have anger you know mm-hmm. if anger if you for me, like my mom used to shut down my anger when I was younger, right? So I have a bit of a temper. Not with people. I seem to have infinite patience for people. But if I put together like an Ikea desk and it's not going well, <laughs> shit starts to fly. Yeah. Like okay. I start throwing my okay. toys. I do because it's like I'm not liking this one bit. But for people, I seem to be able to have infinite patience. But if something, like if I'm putting, that's, I used to have a joke on stage about that. It's like before you get married, you should, you know, you should have to put together like a, like a, a, a gas barbecue that got, that has uh, uh, instructions from Asia on it together. You got to work on this together. If you can't put this barbecue together, you have no business getting married. Oh, you know, awesome. it's like so. It's, it's really important. Test. Yeah, oh, it's really important. I think to recognize that there's a lot of trauma that we don't see. And I also hate like everything is trauma because I see that on Instagram too. Like that's a trauma response. Mm-hmm. The other night, Cynthia caught because we Cynthia likes. Um, using the toothpaste until there's like basically like dust left in it, right? 
So I, what I do is I get it as close as I can, I squeeze, and then I put my lips on it and I suck some of the toothpaste into my mouth so that I get some. And she doesn't like that, you know. <laughs> so it's like, don't suck the toothpaste. It's like, well, let's open a new thing of toothpaste before I have to suck the toothpaste into the thing. It's like, so I thought I was going to do a post the other day that said, you know, sucking the toothpaste when it's almost empty and you can't get it is a trauma <laughs> Do you think we're overusing the word trauma in society in I think general? so. I think so. You know, I, I really do think that, that and, and, and I, in a way, I don't think we are. Like, just creating awareness about it, I think is great. Yes. But I think it's just, you know, if you had a trauma background, as soon as you hear the word trauma, immediately your defenses are going to mm-hmm. go up. So you're not going to get, you're not going to get that penetration in there that may say, hey, you know what, should I, can I deal with my own trauma? So I don't have a problem with the word itself. Mm-hmm. I just have a problem with the fact that I think it turns people off. Like, is there another, like in, in SE, like we, we talk about how do you feel that, where do you feel that in your body? You know, and, and like we use that sentence like over and over again. And I try and change it up a little bit. Like where in your physiology, you know, do you sense that, you know, as opposed to how do you feel that? Because it is one of those things that it's almost like the old 1970s. Like, how does that make you feel, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the same kind of thing. So it's like mixing it up a little bit so that people can accept it because there's so much resistance to going back and dealing with your old wounds. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so much. Because we, we do, we're, we're incredibly resilient human beings. We're incredibly resilient. Um, but it comes at a price. You know, Gordon Neufeld, my mentor in developmental psychology, used to say, at what cost? You know, that's what he would say. So he'd say, you know, we're, we're, we're showing our, we're, we're putting these, our kids on timeouts. Like, put your kids on timeouts. That's, you know, but basically you're shoving their face right into separation when you put, and separation is the reason why they're anxious and upset in the first place. Mm. So when you time them out, uh, you're, putting their, you're putting them into the same position that caused them to, to freak out in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that's what, what Gordon would say. He'd go, but at what cost? You know, so that, that, and I say that with Cynthia all the time, like she'll say something to me, it's like, you got to go to the grocery store and pick up some more, you know, some more beef. And it's like, at what cost? <laughs> I love Gordon you know? Newfield, by the so, way. Oh, he's awesome. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's fantastic. We've done so many, yeah. Cynthia and I have done so many of his courses together and you know, he, he's, um, he doesn't promote himself at all, but just brilliant work. Newfieldinstitute.org, just brilliant work. Hmm. I'll have to check it out. Can we circle back a little bit to what you had talked about, um, how people can see you when they have like ages seven to, you know, adulthood where they're having some anxiety Mm -hmm. versus your wife who does the somatic work from in vitro to seven years old. How do you know which one to work with? To work with. Like, where do you start? It's a good question. I think... A lot of my work I do intuitively, mm. you know, so I have this really woo-woo mm-hmm. ethereal kind of I side. I love it. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you know, so the other day I, I do this room on Clockhouse every Sunday and it's like I could really clearly see this boy got spanked by his father. And I said, did your father spank you at one point, like in public? Because I could see kind of a, a thing of it. I'm closing my eyes now. I'm kind of going into it right now. And he went silent, you know, almost like. Um, yeah, you know, and you could tell he didn't really want to talk about mm-hmm. it. So we moved off it for sure. But sometimes I'll see, I think that's my little superpower is I can see where your pain points are, right? And, and how to direct them, how to access them directly as opposed to just sort of globally using a medication or, you know, doing, talking about it or whatever. Like I can see, you know, and I said this on Mel Robbins too, it's like, you know, anxiety comes from when you stop loving yourself, mm-hmm. you know, when you stop when you start judging yourself, and I have this acronym I call JABS, self-judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. And it's in the book. And this is what happens. So, so it's a great question because it leads me into what I think happens. So when we're children, we are this fertile ground. So if something is going on in our, in our house or our neighborhood or there's trauma around us, typically what children do is they blame themselves. Mm. There's this great quote that says, you know, when you abuse, neglect, or abandon a child, the child doesn't stop loving the parent, they stop loving themselves, yes. right? So that's what happens. So what happens is we get a trauma that's too much for us to bear as children. So we split at that point. So we split into, we blame ourselves. When you blame yourself, and, and Eckhart Tolle talks about this too. There's two entities then. So there's the part that blames and the, there's the part that gets blamed. So 
when we're young and we experience this trauma, we kind of split from ourselves. We blame ourselves for that trauma on some level and we split. And that split creates this place where we stop loving ourselves, stop being connected to ourselves. And that is where the alarm starts. Mm. So, so what I believe happens is we get a trauma as a child, too much for our conscious mind to bear. So we stuff it into our unconscious mind. You, Freud would call that repression. I'm dropping a lot of names today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so so, so we, we, Freud would call it repression. So we repress it into the unconscious. Now the body is a representation of the unconscious mind, right? So if I stuff the trauma of, say, being, I wasn't beaten, but say I was beaten as a child. If I stuff that trauma into my unconscious, it'll find a place in my body. Now I can use that place in your body because I can see that place in your body light up and it's like, can we track back to that? It's like, oh yeah, I remember that I was beaten at this time. Okay, how, how can we support that child in you that was beaten? What, what did that child really need at that time? How would, how, would, how would you rescue them now as opposed to what happened to them back then? So it's kind of this reverse engineering thing that, that we don't get in cognitive therapy. Like we don't get into it and I think it's trying to really drill down into the sensation, you know, like how big is it? Mm-hmm. Where is it? Is it hot, cold? Is it, does it have a, uh, like, does there a tag to it? Is there a tail? Some people will say it has a tail to it. It feels, it feels hollow. Um, it feels like pain. It feels like uh, pressure. Like just really drill into this sensation and have them, if they're okay, you know, are you okay staying in this pain? It's like, yeah, okay, let's just go. Can we go a little deeper? And if you see them really not doing well, then you pull them back out and you talk about something that they really enjoy or they really love, you know. And that's one of the things I'll do quite a bit is I'll find out what you really love in life. You know, it's your kids or your dog or whatever. It's like, okay, well, let's go back and, and talk about your dog, right? And so we'll talk about the dog, we'll get them back regulated again, and then we'll dip our toe back into that place mm-hmm. again, you know. And so we can go a little deeper this time, maybe, maybe not. And then we go back and forth and we kind of oscillate back and forth between the the thing that's painful and the thing that's that feels good you know so we're kind of going in and the what the analogy that I draw is like when you make yourself a cup of tea and you just pour the hot water in, you're not going to drink it right then because the hot water is still like at 212 degrees so you wait or what I do because I'm impatient is uh, I only pour the tea three-quarters of the way through the cup and then I use a teaspoon and I squish the tea bag so I can get as much tea into it and then I go over to the, the fridge and I pour in cold water and then then it's perfect temperature at that point because I'm I'm you know I don't like waiting so that's what happens so in a way that's what I'm doing with their trauma is I'm taking I'm, I'm taking the the intense part of the trauma then I'm pouring some cold water into it which is the part that you know you love and you you're connected to and that kind of stuff and now it's a little more now I can drink the tea now I can manage the trauma a little better and if you do that over and over and over again the the trauma becomes you know it goes from this boiling lava pot into this sort of you know lukewarm it always hurts but it goes into this place where it's more manageable. Once it's more manageable and you get your rational prefrontal cortex back, then you can start grounding that into your body. Like, okay, maybe I am really safe. Maybe I'm not in survival mode right now. Maybe I can actually handle this trauma. Because Bessel van der Kolk, because I'm on name dropping room today, <laughs> Bessel van der Kolk talks about this in The Body Keeps the Score. He says, we're not teaching people how to get rid of their anxiety. Mm-hmm. We're teaching you how to, how to acclimatize to that alarm sensation. Alarm is my word, it's not his, but we're trying to teach people how to acclimatize to that alarm sensation so that it doesn't automatically, compulsively, and ritualistically fire you up into your brain to start worrying. So when you start dealing with the problem at its source, when you start dealing with the uh, alarm in your system, and you know, I'll say this to myself too, when I get when my, my alarm comes up in my solar plexus, it's like, I'll just say to myself, it's just pain. Like, it's just pain. That's all it is. It's just pain. And yet, it hurts. So you still experience anxiety from time Yeah, to I mean, time? I don't think, I think, yeah, I, I think that the thing is, I think on Mel Robbins, uh, it says that, uh, you know, so you healed your anxiety. And it's like, uh, yeah, I healed it in a way, but it's not like it's gone. It's like, you know, my dad died 30 years ago. Does it still hurt? Absolutely it does. You know, so it's not mm-hmm. like you're getting rid of a, a normal part of your life. Like anxiety, we're always going to have anxiety about money or whatever, or kids or whatever. It's not that what what has healed, quote unquote, and for those who can't see, I'm putting quote marks on this. <laughs> what has healed is I'm not compulsively and automatically 
attaching that alarm to compulsive worry anymore. Mm. And that's what I call the alarm anxiety cycle. So we get this alarm in our body from old trauma, like I said, that gets stored in the unconscious. It's fired into our body for long-term storage. That's the alarm. That alarm gets read by the brain in a, in a process called interoception. So the brain reads the body constantly. And if it reads that alarm in your system, and often what you were saying about driving away from that, there's an alarm in your system. So your mind reads that alarm and goes, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Like we've all had that experience mm -hmm. where we're driving along or, or our life is just sort of going along. And it's like, I am really afraid right now. And there's nothing in my environment at all that is scary, mm -hmm. right? So it's a, an emotional kind of flashback to a place where you felt scared. And what your brain will do, because your brain is a compulsive, relentless, meaning-making, make-sense machine, is it reads this alarm in your body and says, this feels terrible. What's terrible in my life? Or what could be terrible in my life? Oh, my kid might get sick. Or, you know, uh, I might not be able to get my car fixed. I might not have money for this. You know, so your brain starts doing this thing that I call stacking. This is a term that I kind of made up. So when we're feeling alarmed, we don't, we don't start thinking, oh, you know, I love my dog. Things are great. You know, I'm grateful for this. We go, oh, shit. Like, what's going on in my life? And then we right. start stacking. Okay, I've got this tax bill coming up. I've got to do this whole thing for my incorporation. You know, my daughter's not feeling well. Like, cause, like we just, anything that, that, that fits with that negative feeling will all of a sudden, like, glue, like, like a magnet, go into your mind. And you'll start giving it credibility. So when I say I've healed, what I do now, it's like, oh, that's my alarm. It's just pain. I, I can sit with it, I can put my hands over it, I can breathe into it, I can stay with it, I can relax my shoulders, relax my jaw, take a few breaths, maybe do some physiological size that Andrew Huberman talks about. Here I am just... That is, is a this great is, tool, yeah, by yeah, the way, we yeah. should talk about that. So, and do that, and sit with that, and then realize that, hey, it's just pain, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't have to compulsively add thoughts to this. Because once you compulsively add thoughts to it, your mind believes it because, like we said before, it doesn't have the rational ability to see that it's not true. So it believes the thoughts, and then that creates more alarm or aggravates the alarm. So you get caught in this alarm anxiety cycle. So what I say is you have to break that cycle. And one of the ways you break that cycle is going, it's just pain. It's just alarm in my body. Find it in your throat or your chest or your belly or whatever it is. Find where it is. Put your hands over it. Connect with it and just sit with it. And just, and just watch your mind just freak itself out by trying to say we have to worry about this we have to worry about this this is what we've done in the past because worry actually does create chemicals in our brain that we get addicted to because it distracts us from the pain in our body mm. so if you were abused by say your mom when you were younger you don't want to sit with that so you'd rather distract yourself into that mm. so when we're young what we do is we go into our heads and we worry and we ruminate because it's much easier and again I'm making quote marks here it's much easier to stay in our heads and ruminate than it is to go back down into that alarm and re-experience on some level unconscious or conscious that old pain of being hit by your mother mm. or being you know embarrassed in front of your school it's so much easier to stay in your head and I think that we we do actually when we avoid that pain we actually secrete a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of um, endogenous morphine, the, the, the kind of pain-relieving chemicals that we have in our brain naturally from the periaqueductal gray in our brainstem. That, so we get rewarded for worry. So of course that's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And we learned that from, ch from childhood. So that's going to be our automatic go-to is to worry. But that's a path that you'll never come off of. Mm -hmm. Like you'll always be on that path. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to just sit with the alarm. It really is. But it's the only way to heal. Well, and, and that's, take action from and that's Yeah, and that's what they say in The Body Keeps the Score as well. You know, it's like that's how you heal is you just realize... I have the option of adding worries to this or not, and then building the strength in yourself not to go into compulsive worry. Right. And that's really how you heal. You know, the other ways of coping and telling yourself that the, the worries aren't real or whatever, that's a coping strategy. And the little um, analogy that I draw, and I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's in the book. Yeah, it is, about the rowboat. You're in a rowboat, mm. it's got a hole in the hull, and it's filling up with water. Now you can, you can bail water out of that rowboat, you know, and you can feel better because you're starting to drop the water level a little bit, but you're not actually fixing the underlying cause. To fix the underlying cause, which is this alarm that I believe is stored in your body that LSD showed me, 
you have to go under and you have to patch that hole in the hull, which is basically fixing the alarm, which is the root cause. And then you don't have to bail water anymore. But, you know, it's, it's our automatic influence from our, our automatic uh, need or want as children is to get rid of this pain as soon as, as soon as we can. So we worry and that's how we do it. So worry is perceived as painful, but not as painful as going into the old trauma. So basically that's, as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> well, Tracy and I both believe your book and your work is brilliant. It is such important work. You have taken a subject that is so complex and confusing, and you've really distilled it down in a way that makes sense to people and gives them a place to start on that journey of healing their anxiety and breaking that cycle between the alarm in the body and the anxiety in the mind. Absolutely. I really believe this is life changing stuff mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. for anyone who experiences anxiety or has a loved one that struggles with anxiety um it's amazing work so yeah thank thanks. you for putting it out in the world yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it was my experience you know yeah. it was like i had to heal myself because i went through 30 years of traditional therapy and it's like this is not working you know i'm still like my quality of life especially when i ruptured my achilles is like i don't know if i want to stay around if this is what my life is going to be for the rest of my life and I think that's the other thing that anxiety does is it makes you think that this is a life sentence. It makes you mm. think that this will always be there. Yes. And it won't. Yes. Once you once you learn, once you get the power, it's like I can sit with this other pain. You know, it's 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 you know, choose pick your heart, right? Uh, I can stick with this pain and of alarm in my system and metabolize that and and fix the root cause, or I can just sort of juggle and bail water for the rest of my life. And I think a lot of people don't have any other option because they don't know that there's other ways mm -hmm. of looking at anxiety. Exactly. So. 100%. But there is a path and you've given that path and I really believe it's the path to more joy and peace and fulfillment in life. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So we are going to wrap up here for yes. our first episode, okay. but we are going to come back with some awesome questions that our listeners have submitted okay. for Dr. Russ. 